Welcome to uh, another episode of Iran Uncovered here in season two. I'm Cameron Consarini, a policy director of NUFTI in our offices in Washington, D.C. As always, a pleasure to be with my co-host, Saeed Ghassaninjad of FDD and a member of NUFTI's Board of Advisors in New York. And today we have the sincere pleasure of being with a good friend, um, an American patriot, uh, and a true friend of both the Iranian-American community and the people of Iran, uh, Mr. Len Khodorkovsky, as he's affectionately known, Mr. Len, which we'll get to later in the show. Um, uh, Len, it's a pleasure to be with you. Said, good to see you again. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Hello. Uh, well, let's just hop on your Len. You know, it, it's not as if your your post State Department career is any uh, slower uh, or less travel. Uh, uh, I guess, oriented than it was when you were at State. So you're running all over the place, uh, but you've been very generous with the time you've given us. So I want to just jump right into this and sort of skip the uh, Iranian um, maybe intros and uh, uh, sweet talking at the beginning. And, and I want to- Tarof, you know, it's, it's called, it's called Tarof. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no, that's it. All right, I'm, I'm good with sweet talk. So bring it on. <laughs> I'll leave that to say, he's, he's, he's the expert. Um, but but I want to I want to first just ask you know a bit about you personally. I mean I've you know had the pleasure to to sit down and speak with you a few times and you know we've we've even shared a few meals. But our our, our listeners haven't been um, that fortunate. So can you just tell us a bit about your upbringing, your background? I mean who who is Len Khodorkovsky and, and where does he come from, both literally and and figuratively? Well, um, I guess where do we start? Um, so I, I, uh, I was born in the Soviet Union uh, back uh, during the Cold War, way back, um, and um, eventually came to the United States as a refugee uh, in the early 80s before Glasnost, Perestroika, while the Soviet Union was still the bad old Soviet Union, and uh, was fortunate enough that the United States took our family in and uh, offered us um, a, a second chance at life. You know, uh, uh, I think th that was probably the most significant event in all of our lives because, you know, up until that point, really none of us knew what freedom was. We heard about a concept like that uh, in the United States, of course, was synonymous with that concept. But, um, we, we really didn't have a frame of reference for what it was. Of course, we've heard of dissidents like Natan Sharansky, Sakharov, various other dissidents uh, in the Soviet Union that uh, fought the communist authoritarian state uh, for a chance at, at some freedom. But that was only something somewhere distant somebody else was doing. And only the United States really when we got here, which was surreal, experience, um, really magical in many ways, because again, we had no frame of reference of what free life was like. Um, it, uh, you know, we, we started taking advantage of, uh, of the freedom that the United States presented. And, uh, you know, I, I always believe that people who come from authoritarian uh, places really appreciate freedom much more than people who have the luxury of growing up in a free country, uh, which is what makes me personally uh, a staunch advocate for freedom for other people, uh, because I know what it feels like, you know. And every human being deserves the dignity uh, and the free will that no person or mullah, as I've stated before, can take away from them. 
So, I mean, mm -hmm. in, in, in essence, that's where I come from. I'm, I'm a Soviet refugee. And eventually, uh, you know, I went into the advertising business in the United States, um, mostly New York, um, and um, somehow ended up uh, being in the right place at the right time um, with an opportunity to serve my country at the State Department during the last administration. If I may, I want to ask a question about you as a Soviet immigrant and the Soviet uh, communities in the, in the United States during the Cold War. Was it like, all were they united in opposing the Soviet Union? I mean, the Soviet community here in the US or it was, you know, some part of them were pro-Soviet. And I'm asking because we have this problem among Iranian American community. I just want to know, like, has there been anything similar in the Soviet community? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, um, you know, in those days, very few people were able to get out of the Soviet Union who opposed the Soviet Union. So uh, anyone who left the Soviet Union was opposed to the government because you just, you know, unless you were representing the country, you know, as a diplomat or KGB agent or some Soviet official, um, you did not leave on a, on a pleasant, uh, in, a, in a pleasant way. So I think um, that that is something that I think was different uh, with the Soviet diaspora versus the Iranian diaspora today, where, you know, uh, I think certainly it's a new generation. The time is different. In those days, the world was really bipolar in many ways. You were either on the side of the United States and freedom, or you were under the communist umbrella and had to um, basically uh, do what the Soviets wanted you to do. So really, you know, there were only two options. And in, the, in those days, I think most people um, in, in the position of my family, once they got out, were staunch anti-Soviet um, advocates. And was there a difference between like um, Soviet uh, Jewish community in the United States and the Jewish American Jewish community in general in their how, how they approach the Soviet Union? I, I don't think so. I, I think if you look back and, and, and again, this is one of those issues that, you know, I, I wish we can um, figure out how to put that formula back together. But not only was the American Jewish community uh, seeing the issue clearly, but the American government, the American establishment, um, the American media was also uh, looking at the issue very clearly. And so you had many marches and protests in those days um, in front of the Soviet embassy, uh, whenever the Soviets would come to the United States or some other country, you would have people being really vocal and not just Jewish dissidents, but you had uh, pro-democracy dissidents uh, who, were, who took up the cause of the, of, the, uh, of the Jews in the Soviet Union and rallied around that to point out, um, you know, how, um, how, how uh, to point out the oppression that this particular community was, was under. Um, so you really had people rallying from many different communities to this cause. It was, uh, you know, on one hand, it was a specific cause of Jews being oppressed in the communist regime, but it's it was symbolic of a, of a broader conflict between freedom and authoritarianism. And somehow 
people in the West saw that much more clearly than they seem to today. I, I want to come back to that, Elena, and the comparison that I think you're, you're, you're getting to for Iran today and you know, why that is or isn't the case um, as it was with the Soviet Union. But, but sticking with, uh, with you, because it's, it's very interesting. You said you, know, you were sort of in the right place at the right time. I'm just going to come out and say that you know one of my favorite shows is is Mad Men, and I I don't know you know exactly if you were you know working uh, like things uh, go in the show with you know Don Draper type characters and you know having having a scotch and soda at at 11:30 a.m. But what you know what what drove you into into the advertising and and, and marketing worlds? Um, you know why why go into that? It's, it's not a you know, I, I assume there's probably some overlaps with, you know, Soviet immigrant parents and Iranian immigrant parents and other immigrant parents. And it's, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer, you know, a- advertising is, is not always up there. How did how did that happen? Uh, well, you're, you're spot on there. I, I uh, my parents only gave me three options. Uh, my dad was an engineer and I'm surprised they didn't push me in that direction. But um, I, I could only be, you know, doctor, lawyer or an accountant in my case. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I actually started down that path okay. and of course, you know, the parents, immigrant parents want the best for their kids, you know, because you're, you're, w- when we came to the United States, we had no money. Mm-hmm. My parents were working hard two, three jobs. They certainly wanted the best for me and my sister who happened to be born three months after we arrived in the United States. So they were, they, you know, they, they had a simple formula in mind, which is like, we know you can make a living in these three uh, jobs. So uh, sure, we'll give you options. It's a, it's a sort of like a <laughs> hybrid democracy here, yeah. but, but that's about it. And uh, you know, somewhere, I guess somewhere halfway through intermediate accounting, I decided uh, that that is not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life uh, and um, ended up and, and of course, you know, our family was always into politics. We talked about politics at home. We were following current events, uh, you know, coming from a very politicized environment and being very um, conscious of, of all of these things. Uh, this was during Reagan's time when, you know, the evil empire uh, the, uh, was, was uh, like the big conversation. Um, so I, I was always interested in politics. I ended up uh, transitioning to being a political science major uh, because I thought, all right, well, I can hedge there. I'm interested in politics, but I can also become a lawyer at a certain point. So it felt like a safe place for me to go. Uh, but but I was also into um, art and design. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I had a, a modest talent in that realm and uh, ended up minoring in design. Uh, and subsequently, uh, I actually ended up getting a master's degree in design here in the United States in New York. And so, you know, I, I was politically inquisitive and curious, but uh, was really, I guess, turned off at a certain point about what it took to be a political uh, professional. Uh, you know, it just didn't seem all that appetizing to me. Uh, and so I, I kind of tended to go into the other realm of communication, uh, which is somehow ended up being advertising and marketing. And, and really, how did I end up in advertising? Because, you know, I was applying to a whole bunch of places and w- trying to put my design chops to use. And I happened to land in advertising. And that's basically how I ended up staying in advertising. And I have to tell you, I mean, I love the advertising scene. I worked in there 
for about 20 years uh, in New York. I, I think I miss the Don Draper era to my <laughs> great disappointment of the three martini lunches and yeah. such. Um, but, uh, you know, I did some damage. Um, I did some damage and eventually, um, you know, eventually I, I ended up in, a, in an advertising firm that was doing a lot of political advertising. Um, and uh, in 2016, a guy named Donald Trump uh, became one of our clients. And, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, you know the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, heard, I heard he really went places. Um, the, <laughs> so, so, so you come into, uh, you know, you're, you have uh, the Trump campaign as a, as a client. And then, you know, we fast forward, he wins the election. Um, how, do you, how do you end up working um, for the administration? You work in the State Department, obviously. How do, how do you end up doing that? And how do you end up working on Iran policy um, in particular? Well, um, so I was, um, I, I, after Donald Trump won the 2016 election, um, you know, typically, you know, there's a transition that takes place from one administration to another. So the Trump administration needed some people to come to Washington and volunteer to, uh, with the transition, meaning help various nominees through the confirmation process, uh, literally just pick up where the previous administration left off and, and try and put people and policies in place to be able to start on January 20th of 2017. So I raised my hand and I said, you know, I'd like to volunteer and come to Washington. And, and um, that's what I did. Um, and I worked in the transition um, during the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. And on January 20th, after um, having the fortune of uh, going to the inauguration balls and the uh, and the swearing in and one of my um, most um, uh, prized experiences is being able to bring my parents uh, to the inauguration and the inauguration balls because uh, they never really you know it was surreal you know how, it was it was a it was a trajectory that nobody could anticipate when we landed at JFK in 1981. Um, you know, penniless. Um, so it, it was it was a it was a cool experience. But after that, I ended up going back into advertising. Uh, and a few months later, somebody I worked with in the in the transition basically gave me a call and gave me an offer I couldn't refuse, which is, hey, how would you like to serve your country? And uh, um, I, uh, I, you know, it took me about thirty seconds to come up with an answer to that. Um, and, uh, you know, a few months later, I ended up joining the administration as a digital strategy um, specialist. So uh, I, I worked, I came in, um, you know, with obviously with a wealth of knowledge from the private sector as to what good practices look like, how to build audiences, how to get your message across. Uh, and um, that's, that's why I ended up working in at the State Department for the Bureau of Global Public Affairs, which obviously uh, is the, the um, America's uh, voice around the world. And so it was a real privilege to be able to try and figure out how best to communicate the American brand to the rest of the world. And that was good enough for me, frankly. I mean, I was, I was really living the dream at that point, um, literally touching every issue. Um, 
And, uh, you know, having access to people I could never dream of having access to, I have to tell you, there were plenty of times where I was sitting in a room and wondering what the hell I was doing in that room. Uh, and, um, but, you know, I, I had faith that people who brought me there thought I had something to contribute. So, um, you know, I think if you fast forward a little bit, um, if you remember Secretary Pompeo joined the administration in 2018, um, the end of spring, early summer of 2018. And uh, when he joined, he actually uh, put together uh, what was called the Iran Action Group, which was a group of um, specialists and professionals, uh, you know, diplomats and, and other folks uh, who would be um, kind of like the central um, um, team that would be coordinating the Iran policy on behalf of the United States government. Uh, it was led by Brian Hook. And um, I know that you know Brian had a lot of pieces together at the time as to people who know policy, people who know, uh, you know military aspects of, of what's going on and various other aspects. Um, but the one thing he didn't have and he was looking for is a communication specialist. So again, you know, um, as is my way to dive in over my head, uh, I raised my hand and I said, hey, you know, I'm a communication specialist and this seems like a consequential issue for me to get involved with. Um, and, you know, after talking to Brian, uh, I ended up uh, joining the Iran Action Group as the uh, senior advisor for public affairs. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, eventually spent about two years working on the Iran policy from the beginning when, um, you know, uh, President Trump ripped up the deal which the Biden administration is trying to tape up and put back together, um, and, and uh, all the way through uh, the demise of Qasem Soleimani, um, which I think were, were the most consequential two years uh, in the relationship between our countries and our people. I, I want to ask, before I hand it back over to site, I've been asking a lot, but uh, I'm very interested. You, you told me this once, and, and I want to see if, if you'll share it with with our uh, our viewers and listeners, which is uh -oh. <laughs> it's not that bad. Which is the first uh, team meeting that you had uh, with Secretary Pompeo, and and what you told him, um, and and how that was sort of a guiding light into your your time working on Iran policy, and also you know some of the work you're doing now, which which we'll get to uh, towards towards the end of the show. But what what was that first meeting like, and, and can you tell everyone what what you said to to Secretary Pompeo? Um, sure. I, I, without giving too much away, yeah. uh, you know, every so often the Iran team would brief uh, Secretary Pompeo as to the latest, um, you know, progress in in what we were doing. Uh, and this was my first meeting with Secretary Pompeo. Um, you know, he knew everybody else in the room, but he didn't know me at the time. Uh, and uh, you know, he kind of uh, looked at me uh, after Brian introduced me to him uh, and asked me what my mission was. And, you know, Secretary Pompeo is, you know, military guy, you know, very direct and, and, and to the point. And, you know, when he looks at you, you know, he can, he can make you nervous. Um, so, I, you know, and, and he talks in these military terms, like, what's my mission? Nobody's asking what my mission was. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I guess I, I um, you know, I felt like I got to say something. So... Uh, it's this, and this just came out. I said, Mr. Secretary, um, it's to make the bad guys nervous. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, 
I wasn't sure how he'd respond to that, but he kind of gave me an approving nod and I, I knew I was on the right course. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that I figured if I, if I spent my time at the State Department making bad guys nervous, I, I'd be on the right track. And that's hopefully I ended up doing some of that. I, I think so, Said. Yeah, I have a question about the communication strategy because I think one of the defining characteristics of administration's Iran communication strategy was very creative use of social media and visual arts, like that uh, sanctions are coming posters. Uh, how did you know how how did the administration came up with that? Is it be, was it because the mainstream media media wasn't kind to the administration, so they had to use other platforms, or it was just you know uh, you wanted to, the administration wanted to use these uh, alternative platforms. Well, um, look, I mean, you, you, you know, everybody in the world knows President Trump was a fan of social media. Um, so he that that is how he um, communicated, um, you know, U.S. policy, his point of view. Uh, he, he found social media, especially Twitter, Instagram as well, to be a powerful tool to be able to drive a global conversation on the issues that you know, the administration cared about. So, you know, all of us knew that that was not something that we would have a hard time trying to sell, that it's worth using all of these tools at our disposal to our advantage. So w walking in with that understanding, um, you know, especially in my role as a digital strategy um, uh, person in the administration, I, I, I looked at all the tools at our disposal. And once I started working on the Iran portfolio, you know, I, I uh, you know, I saw exactly what we had. And of course, we had a lot of uh, platforms in Farsi. We had, um, you know, the secretary's platforms. We had the State Department platforms. Uh, we had various other channels that the U.S. government has. Um, and you know, it felt like we were underutilizing all of those tools at the time. For me, coming from the private sector, I, I felt like we can activate a lot of things that were either totally dormant or underused, and at the very least, to see whether they worked. And the, the philosophy of going above the heads of uh, other entities like the media or the Iranian government or, or somebody who disagrees with your policy, um, you know, it wasn't really new. President Reagan was, did that successfully by going directly to the people. And so we knew, and you know, President Trump did that with Twitter and social media as well, and holding rallies, uh, talking directly to the people. So we we figured, you know, uh, our, our you know we can talk directly to the people as well. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a very simple advertising uh, approach. You know, you in order to have a successful advertising campaign or 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 marketing campaign, you have to understand who your audience is and how does your audience get their uh, information. Uh, is it through radio? Is it through TV, social media, uh, hot air balloons? You know, it doesn't really matter, but you have to understand, you know, where your audience um, is in order to be able to communicate with them effectively. So we approached the operation the same way that I would approach it with my clients in advertising, figuring out where the audience is, who the audience is, 
Uh, what are the important messages for us to communicate to that audience? Who would be the best spokespeople for specific messages? You know, is it sec you know Secretary Pompeo or President Trump or Brian Hook, or maybe you know none of them at all? Maybe it's a dissident, or or may maybe it's something else altogether. So we, we kind of look at the the problem as a uh, in in a way that uh, that was fairly scientific, actually. You know, um, let's put aside all of the politics and let's figure out who we're talking to and what are we trying to say and what are we you know, what do we hope that uh, people uh, hear from us? And, th and that's that's the approach that we took. Um, so it was very, very simple and straightforward. It was just kind of activating all the tools at our disposal. And, and that led to, I mean, it's 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 right behind you, Said. You go ahead. I know you want to say something. I just want to add this, but uh, it's it's right behind you, which is awesome. It led to you being called, I mean, your, your leadership on this issue and, and your colleagues, the State Department's secret weapon. I mean, you, you had some really, you know, Said mentioned one of them, uh, the sanctions are coming. Um, but I, I just, just to throw in my own two cents, I think it was so cool for Iranians, Iranian Americans, but I think especially Iranians inside the country when they, because I, I know that you have been, you and others in the administration were criticized for being undiplomatic or some of the things that you did were not, not what one does, but whether it's, you know, making memes or like, you know, limiting Zarif to a certain area in New York that he can go. I mean, the reaction that I saw just as an observer from Iranians was like, let's go, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're so accustomed to themselves being limited by this regime or themselves being insulted by this regime that, you know, they, they felt like a sense of, Hey, you know, somebody's the, the battle has been joined. You know, we, we've got some people who are sticking it, uh, to to the regimes. I mean, you you know, you, you guys got a lot of fans um, for that. It was really remarkable. Well, I, I think that I think that has to do with um, clarity. You know, uh, we 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 identified who the good guys and the bad guys are, uh, and a main feature of our Iran policy was specifically distinguishing between the Iranian regime and the Iranian people. So, uh, you know, it was very clear and we wanted to make sure the Iranian people understood that. And even in the face of some, um, you know, controversial policies, which the regime and friends of the regime criticized, um, we wanted to make sure the people themselves understood what we were trying to do, why we were trying to do it, and that uh, they had a friend in the White House and they had a friend in the United States. I think a lot of that, to bring it back to my experience um, in the Soviet Union, had to do with the way I remember Soviet dissidents, uh, you know, listening to Voice of America or 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 any uh, any possible nugget that they can get from some uh, uncensored source uh, about what the Americans were saying or, or what the West was saying about their plight and the situation. And I, I know that when, uh, you know, people like my parents and their generation and, and, and the folks in, in like that heard words of encouragement from the United States, uh, even as they were, you know, as they were punished, you know, like Natan Sharansky spent seven years in so solitary, right? But he always said that when he heard President Reagan and other politicians in the United States, um, stand with them. 
it gave him strength in solitary confinement. It gave him strength to push back on the regime. And he understood why the United States was harsh on the Soviet Union. It wasn't that the United States had anything against him or the, the people who uh, were suffering um, uh, in the Soviet Union. It was because of the oppressors who were making them suffer. And, and this is something that I knew intuitively and, and I knew others felt this way as well and learned some of those lessons uh, from, from the Cold War. Uh, so we, we were really confident that the people will, would understand why we're putting in maximum pressure on the regime. Uh, and whenever we got criticized for, for those things, uh, we, we were confident that uh, the, the people would understand our policy and were, you know, pushed forward because, um, uh, you know, because we learned from history and uh, some of us learned it from our own personal experiences. So, you know, that, that's a really critical thing. And you know, look, I mean, we didn't start out to make fans from the Iranian people. The important thing here, you know, from American perspective, and you and I think it's important for Iranian people to understand this as well, whenever they get mad at the United States or the West for not doing this thing or that thing or not sanctioning this person or that person. Look, I mean, the, the goal of the United States government is to protect the American people. Uh, you know, American national security is the number one job, especially of the executive branch of American government, which is you know, the, the president as the commander in chief leads. So his number one job is to keep Americans safe. So, you know, whether we get involved somewhere in the world and how we get involved, all has to be tied back as to whether that makes Americans safer. And if we decide that we need to do, you know, X or Y or Z, uh, and sometimes it's public and sometimes it's private, sometimes you know, you're seeing military action and sometimes you're seeing cyber action, sometimes you're not seeing anything at all, but believe me, there's always stuff going on. Um, the, the end goal of, of, of the government in the United States is to protect Americans. So in that respect, um, we also believe that America is unique because we were born on the premise that every human being has the right, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a uniquely American uh, founding principle, uh, which every single American um, understands intuitively. And so whenever we see people who are oppressed, like people in Iran or people you know, elsewhere in the world, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, wherever, uh, we, we uh, Intuitively, number one, but the, th the one thing we need to do is we need to communicate that we, we are aligned with them and their aspirations for freedom. Because as long as they're not free, um, the world is less safe. And the way to make the world more safe is to have more free people. Free people don't fight with each other. Uh, and, um, and, and so that's where you know, um, different shades of, of different you know, tactics are determined in order to figure out how do we ensure that the Iranian people are more free while protecting the American people? What do we need to do in order to defang the Iranian regime so that it threatens the American uh, citizens less uh, and um, 
and 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 the Iranian people as well, because you know, as you as you as you know, uh, what starts as domestic oppression, uh, you know, ends up spilling over into regional conflict and and beyond that. And you know, when when a uh, a, a regime like the Iranian regime has the ability to um, to threaten not just its people but its neighbors and eventually the United States and our friends you know that that makes the american people less safe which is why this is an important issue for us to to focus on yeah i just want to make uh, one point first i think that the trump administration was most hated by the regime and its supporters and most loved by those in iran who don't like the regime uh, second i think that the platforms that you guys were running were really popular at that time, like USA, USA and Farsi, which is a government platform. It's usually not very, really, you know, creative. But at that time, it was really one of the, I think, most uh, read platforms in among Iranians. And it's very sad to see what happened to it uh, in the new administration. Uh, but one point that you mentioned about when US gets involved. And I want to go to the cold for cold for, and because I'm Iranian American, I don't want to mention Iran, so I mentioned Venezuela. So I think if it was during the cold war, and you had something like Venezuela, you had a, an interim president who was pro-US, you had like uh, security forces, part of the military who was backing him, it would be a no-brainer for the US government to go in, and. Right now, we don't see that. Like, we don't see it in uh, many places. And I'm not talking about like promotion, promoting democracy. I don't think it's uh, a US job to go and promote democracy through military forces. But I think it's US job to, you know, promote US national interest. And in some places like Venezuela, I think, you know, getting rid of uh, Maduro should be a should be a goal, even if it requires like some level of military inter intervention. But we don't see that. And I think it's something that we, we don't see in the, let's call it America first uh, foreign policy. I want, I, I know you are a believer in that. I wanted to get uh, your point. Well, um, to your first point about um, the uh, USA um, platforms for in, in Farsi, um, I think again it goes. Why was it popular? Because we were relevant. We were putting in. We were we we're communicating relevant information. A lot of times, uh, governments are very risk averse in the way they communicate their objectives. And you know, personally, coming from a communications business, I. Uh, I, I, I knew what um, good looks like and how to communicate effectively. And, you know, luckily, um, the leadership of the administration understood how to use those platforms as well. Why waste a platform that reaches hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? I think when I was there, we all together reached probably upwards of 10 million people in general um, on a regular basis every day. Uh, through the, through the usage of all of our platforms. So what's the point of putting out boring press releases or uh, you know talking about the weather uh, when um, when we could 
uh, optimize all of those platforms in order to communicate our strategic objectives. So that was kind of intuitive and, and common sense. Um, now, the reason you're, you're not seeing it today and probably didn't see it before the Trump administration is not so much, um, well, I should say it's a combination of things. First and foremost, th there really aren't that many marketing people inside of government. So th that skill set just isn't there. And so people you know, don't really know how to do that well professionally. You, you have diplomats who are in those roles or you have civil servants in those roles. And they're, they're just doing what, you know, their leadership is asking them to do, but they don't really understand necessarily how to move the needle in a particular direction using communication. Um, so number one job for most people in those, in those positions is not to make a mistake. And it, it really takes people who, number one, understand the potential of those platforms, and number two, are willing to optimize the messaging or calibrate it to the point where it's 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 uh, it's a strategically uh, useful um, um, tool uh, in order to be able to to do what we did. And so, on, on the one hand, it's it's an, it's a, it's a matter of not having the right skill sets in place, which I think the United States government and all good guys and all the all the democratic governments should should do a better job at trying to understand and fill. Uh, but, but second, the culture of risk aversion, I think, is something that needs to change. And, um, you know, and then, of course, there are policy differences. So, you know, the Biden administration is in the middle of renegotiating a deal that we vehemently disagreed with. And while they're still negotiating, um, they don't want to step on their, uh, um, you know, their, on their goals by tweeting something out that might be controversial. So that's, that's probably another element of their calculation. But, but overall, I think it's, it's a matter of understanding the strategic value and putting the right people in place to, to, um, uh, you know, to take full advantage of it. Now, in terms of the other question, in terms of why, why does the American government, why isn't it as proactive as it used to be in the Cold War in changing leaderships or regimes? Um, you know, I think even in those days, you know, we there were there were a number of places where the United States intervened, and you know, there were controversial. Yeah, obviously, Vietnam was one of them, and you 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 had a number of other um, controversial um, places where the United States decided to weigh in in one way or another, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't work, and it was a different time again because. You know, uh, from my perspective as a, as, a, as a media professional, even the media landscape in those days was different than it is today. You didn't have, you know, you didn't have reporters embedded with every military unit. You, uh, you know, there were only a handful of networks and a handful of papers that were reporting on things. It was, it was not as challenging to control a message or, or try and respond to, um, you know, to to um, uh, to, to uh, contrary um, uh, messages. So it was just a very different landscape in those days, and um, it's become a lot more complicated today. But obviously, you know, people have people, even people in Iran and people in China and people in Venezuela can 
overcome the censorship of their governments to access information. Uh, and that's a good thing. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I think the more the people know, the better. Uh, and that's true in the United States and that's true uh, in Iran and Venezuela as well. Um, so we th that is something that we know we could take advantage of and which, which we did knowing that yes, the Iranian regime censors this platform or that platform, but we knew, you know, they couldn't they couldn't completely close the door on information. Uh, so we we try and be more creative, or we try to be more creative, to try and um, get get our messages across. And in terms of policy of intervention, well, look, I mean, we have our interests. The United States has interests all over the world. Um, we have alliances, we have partnerships, we have. Uh, economic interests, we have security interests, um, we have, you know, democratic interests. Uh, and the way in which we intervene today or participate in the geopolitics today is a lot more probably nuanced because we have so many more resources and we could be more agile. And we've discovered that I think today, uh, you know, you're, you're in a world where it's probably more likely that you'll have economic warfare versus military warfare determine um, who, who, who is the dominant uh, superpower in the world or which way of life um, ends up emerging for the next generation. So I, I think we're looking at the American government, look at everything at its disposal. And our maximum pressure campaign was actually a good example because it was essentially an economic a campaign of sanctions that uh, brought a, uh, a you know authoritarian regime to its weakest point since 1979, um, and we we ended up doing that in a matter of I would say if you're looking at the real um, you know campaign it was probably a year and a half. Uh, because we didn't really zero out oil sanctions until, I don't know, May of 19, I would say, probably. Um, so really, the full pressure didn't really start until that point. And in a matter of a year or a year and a half or so, we ended up having quite an impact with a largely economic campaign. Now, of course, you need other elements like deterrence, uh, like making sure that the Iranian uh, regime doesn't Cut off shipping lanes. Uh, that you know, they you know, we 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 check their military, their um, missile development, their hostage taking. I mean, all of those things are things we need to uh, deal and deter. Uh, and Soleimani is a good example of deterrence too. I mean, that was essentially, you know, a another element of pressure saying that if you threaten us or our interests, which of course. You know, leading up to the strike on Soleimani uh, and Mohandas, uh, there were attacks on American facilities in Iraq, and our embassy was uh, was being stormed. And we told the Iranian regime that whether it's you directly or your proxies that are doing this, we're going to hold you responsible. So the Iranian regime knew what our position was. I guess what they underestimated is our willingness to follow through on our commitment, and that, that's essentially what we did. But I guess net-net is there are many tools at our disposal. The American government um, is um, 
you know, very resourceful. And even if we're slow sometimes, even if we don't optimize some of those resources, we, we do have a lot of ways in which we can affect um, events in the world. And we can't be everywhere at once either. So that, which is why we need to cooperate with our allies. The more friends we have around the world, the more likely that the United, the, the United States uh, and its citizens are safer. Uh, and so is the American and uh, free way of life. We're, we're, uh, we're shockingly, you know, nearing the end of, of, of our time because we, we have so much to talk about. There's about 75 other things I want to talk about, but we won't have time to get to all of them. So just a, a few ones in short order. One quick, and just, just because I'm, I'm wearing the t-shirt, which I selected, obviously, intentionally to wear today. This is, this is a t-shirt that, that you designed. Um, many people may not know that, but probably most people who are watching this know who this is. Uh, but if you don't, uh, it, it's Puya Bakhtiari, uh, who was one of the protesters killed in uh, the November 2019 protests in Iran, the Aban protests, or bloody Aban, as they came to be known. At least 1,500 people, as you well know, Len, uh, were massacred uh, by the Islamic Republic. Um, but you, you know, and... and Puya was probably much more well known than a lot of those other, you know, uh, 1,500 to God knows how many um, people who were who were brutally killed. So his his story was sort of out there. But it it seems to me, and, and I think a lot of people I've talked to, that he he you know had a special place in your heart. You you talked a lot about um, Puya, and then his father Manuche when he was arrested. What what was it about Puya? Um, from, you know, in line with this, this theme we've been talking about, about you, you and your colleagues engaging directly the Iranian people, what was it about Puya that, you know, as, as we may say in Farsi, sort of, you know, sat on your heart, you know, what, what was it about him and, you know, that you took so much interest in it? Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, that, was, that was a tough couple of weeks uh, in, in November of 2019. Um, and, you know, when I, when I joined the administration in December of 2017, um, if you recall, there were protests around that time, end of December, early January of 2018. And I remember we were kind of looking at what was, what was going on. And, you know, one of the things that we were discussing as we were seeing all these events on the, uh, um, taking place is, you know, we, we knew full well uh, of the 2009 protests and the lost opportunity uh, that the Obama administration um, ended up wasting to uh, make sure that the Iranian people understood that the American people stood with them. And so even at that time in January of 2018, uh, we were discussing as to how to make sure we don't do that. And how do we make, make sure that uh, the Iranian people hear us and we can communicate with them in the best way that we, uh, that we can. And, um, so there were conversations taking place all throughout the administration about communicating with the Iranian people uh, and helping Iranian people communicate with each other uh, because it was just a matter of time we knew that another protest would would happen and we don't want to be in the, exactly in the same place again and so you know when we when in those early days of uh, the 2019 protests you know we we had things in place which we thought would help and because we, we we've been working on a number of um, uh, projects and initiatives to, um, you know, to ensure that the regime could not squash the Iranian people's 
ability to a communicate with each other, communicate with the outside world, but also you know um, uh, you know uh, exercise their God-given freedom of expression. So you know we were seeing all this, and we were of course uh, making sure that we optimized all of those things and helping. Uh, the Iranian people uh, make sure that they they got their message out, and you know, as we were seeing videos emerge from those protests, uh, I think it was a couple of days into the protests that uh, Puya's story ended up uh, seeping out. And um, the one thing that I saw as I was tracking uh, all of these videos and all of these messages coming out of Iran is that. Um, you know, they were so personal, you know, and these these were kind of, you know, I, I just saw these young people and that reminded me of my own kids and the people that I knew and people were they were expressing themselves in a way that I or, you know, you might express yourself. Um, things we take for granted in the United States, you know, if you just disagree with something, you go out and you write an op-ed or you, you go in protests or, you know, you create a video. Um, we take all these things for granted. Of course, we knew that the Iranians couldn't do those things that were oppressed. So when, when Puya's video came out and the whole idea of him um, just walking out on the street, this, this guy with a smile, happy-go-lucky, um, loved Elvis, you know, uh, can't help falling in love was his favorite song. Um, you know, it was just very easy to relate to him. And, um, and and then the rest of the story obviously was, he was basically shot through the head by the regime goons for no reason other than being a normal, freedom-loving young person. And it really, I mean, personally it hit me. I know it, it touched Secretary Pompeo as well, and all of us who were working on it, and in fact, if you recall, Secretary Pompeo, uh, during the Iran human rights event, brought up his case, and uh, for which Minusher, his you know Puya's dad, thanked uh, Secretary Pompeo. Um, and, and so I think it was for me it was a personal connection because I, I really looked at Puya as you know he could be my son, he could be he could be my neighbor. Um, you know, hey, I, I'm into Elvis too. You know. Um, and I believe he was a vegetarian, right? That's so American. <laughs> well, actually, it's not that American. We're into steak, but <laughs> it was just so, it was so trendy. It was just like, he was just a young person being young. And, yeah. and it really, you know, it kind of punched me in the gut and punched, you know, a lot of us. Uh, and, and it became really personal and he became kind of symbolic of all those other young people and children, uh, young people, old people, who were mowed down by a soulless um, entity, monstrous, soulless, barbaric entity that did not care for human life. And it, it really crystallized what the whole conflict was about, what, what the mission was. You know, if, if I told Secretary Pompeo that my mission was to make the bad guys nervous, nothing really crystallized that mission than what was happening in Iran on the ground in those days. You know, there was no doubt who the bad guys were here. No doubt whatsoever. Um, and, um, and, and so I, you know, there, I guess, I guess in, you know, from that point on, the uh, Bakhtiari family became kind of something that always perked me up. And of course, 
uh, you know, it didn't end there because when Puya's family tried to give him a, uh, a, a, um, uh, a civilized burial, they weren't allowed to do that. Uh, they weren't allowed to, to uh, celebrate his life. They weren't allowed to bury him in peace. Uh, and then of course now his, his father is in prison. And so like the saga of this family is really analogous to the plight of a lot of Iranian families and frankly, a lot of families all over the world that are suffering under the yoke of oppression, uh, whether it's the Iranian oppression here or the Chinese oppression or Venezuelan or Cuban. Uh, and so, you know, for me as a Soviet immigrant, you know, it's, it's personal from that perspective, but as an American, it, it flies in the face of all the values which I've come to cherish and have, which I've um, tried to impart to my children. Um, so I think, that, you know, in the end, you know, one of the, to bring it full circle, um, one of the ways in which I am able to express my um, beliefs uh, and opinions is through art and design. I, you know, that happens to be my background. And so it was, it was natural for me to stand in solidarity with the Bhattiari family uh, by, uh, put, you know, designing a t-shirt that you're wearing. And, uh, you know, it's kind of indicative of, as to the way that I can express my voice uniquely, which everybody can in their own way. Everybody has a unique power, a unique talent, God-given uh, ability uh, to, um, to break through and add their, uh, you know, their voice to the cause of, you know, free, freedom and human dignity. And I hope everybody does in their own way. And this is just my way. I, I, I think you obviously certainly did that. And you, I know that the Bakhtiari family obviously appreciated all that the secretary did, as you say, publicly thanked him, which in and of itself was a huge risk and sort of, you know, just destroyed in the most perfect way possible, the absurd lie, I think that's so often told by as you call them, uh, the friends of the regime uh, here in the United States, and, and even the mainstream media, which says, uh, e even unfortunately, you know, people like Secretary Blinken, you know, have, I think, given credence to these comments, which is the best way to help the Iranian people, the Venezuelan people, the Chinese people, people of Hong Kong, wherever, is to do nothing, is to say nothing. Um, and if, you know, if you say something, if the United States says something, it's going to hurt those families and they won't appreciate it. Uh, you know, the fact that Manu Jibakhtiari, after his son was brutally killed, came out and, and publicly thanked the American Secretary of State, you know, just destroyed all of those, you know, absurd and really insulting arguments, in, in my view, sort of in one fell swoop. Um, and, and, you know, it, it led, you know, the, the humanity, I think, that you showed towards not only the Bakhtiari family, but Iranians generally and other, you know, oppressed people led, uh, you know, you, you know this and we, we've laughed about it before, but uh, Iranians are, you know, can be pretty formal sometimes. So it led to you in plenty a clubhouse room uh, and, and Twitter uh, comment thread being affectionate, affectionately known now as Mr. Len. Um, and so I think that's, that's certainly a name that, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the revolution in Iran after they, they changed all the names into, you know, sort of Islamist names and all these clerics and you know terrorists. So I I, I have no doubt that uh, uh, you know when there's a free Iran, uh, there's going to be a movement amongst us and Iranians to to name at least one street uh, Mr. Len Avenue. Uh, so I think we have we have that to look forward to. Um, but I, I want to ask you and, and said you may want to have some last words, but I want to just bring us to today. You, you're no longer um, in government service, which is unfortunate um, both for the American people and for you know freedom seeking people, I think all over the world, but you obviously, as I said, at the beginning, have not stopped. You're working on a bunch of issues. Um, 
they're they're sort of disparate, but because we're limited in time, I'm going to ask you both about both at the same time, and and you know see if you can give us a bit about each of them. You're working on China a lot. Um, I, I see you talking about that a lot on social media. Um, the threat that the CCP poses, obviously, um, but also you know something you worked on when you were in government and, and also continue to work on is is the Abraham Accords and and the Cyrus Accords, which you uh, along with Victoria. Coats uh, coined, um, and now we see this new project called Yala. Um, so, can can you tell us a bit about your work on China? What's what's the Cyrus Accords? What's what's going on with Yala? Wow, um, I'll talk about all of those things um, <laughs> in in ten seconds. Ten sounds coherent about all of them. Um, all right. Well, let, let's let's start with uh, uh, Cyrus Accords first. I think that would be of interest to your audience. Um, I, I hope you know more and more people. Uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, find out more about a few articles that Victoria Coates and I wrote on, on this topic, which have, of course stems from the idea that um, uh, the Iranian people and the Jewish people, Israelis, have uh, a long history in common uh, that dates back 2,500 years or more to the time of Cyrus the Great. Um, Cyrus, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Cyrus, you know, King Cyrus uh, liberated the Jewish people from their um, exile in Babylon and uh, allowed them to go back to um, uh, uh, to, to their homeland and uh, rebuild their temple uh, on the on the uh, on the Temple Mount, which they did. Uh, and in fact, he was such a um, big. Um, uh, ally of that effort that I, he, he uh, used some of the treasury, some of his treasure to finance the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Uh, in fact, you know, Cyrus the Great is probably one of very few, if not a handful of non-Jews mentioned in the Bible. I think he's mentioned 23 times in the Old Testament. And that's a sign of respect and the bond that um, the, the Jewish people and the Persian people and, you know, people uh, had dating back millennia. And the, the big idea behind Cyrus Accords, is, of course, it's a riff off of the Abraham Accords, is that the last 40 some odd years of the uh, regime in power in Iran are a historical anomaly. This is not the typical relationship between uh, Israel and Iran or Jews and Persians and, and others in the region. Um, so the premise of it is that the time will come, and I believe not, not too far away, where the current regime in power is going to end up like all dictatorships on the ash heap of history. And then uh, history will find a way to reconnect the Jewish people and the Iranian people uh, in their traditional bonds and in all of the things that they have in common and collaborate toward a brighter future for both. Uh, that's a that's that's an that's a actually a very intuitive and um, reasonable thing to believe. It it is proven by 2,500 years of history, and anyone who's, who who says that the last 40 years are you know of, of tension between Iran and Israel, for example, and everybody else seemingly um, is is uh, is really kind of the way that things are is missing the whole point and I think is way off base. So our goal to essentially is number one, to introduce the idea, which we did. We think more, more and more people are finding out about uh, reconnecting those things. 
And the next step, of course, is to uh, actually put it in action. One of the things that we did to put it in action last year is to bring a number of Iranians to Israel so that uh, they could see for themselves what, and, and you know, it was qu quite, quite actually a, a very eye-opening experience, you know, more so, maybe even more so for me than them. Uh, and I was fortunate to go with Victoria and Ali Kohanam, who's my uh, uh, partner in crime, also the first uh, Iranian-born State Department envoy who is a staunch defender of the Iranian people. So anyway, we had this privilege to bring uh, this group of people to, to Israel where they could see and talk to people and see things for themselves. You know, one of the most impactful things, which was, you know, people might find amusing is that it wasn't taking them to the Western Wall or the Temple Mount or, uh, you know, or, or some kind of famous, uh, uh, you know, uh, historical place. It's really to take them to a street named after Cyrus the Great. You know, they wanted, they all just wanted to take a picture in front of a street sign, which was like Cyrus Street. You know, that, that was the most, you know, meaningful thing to a lot of them, which I guess, I guess underscores this whole uh, notion of Cyrus Accords that, that what, what, what binds all of us is deeply rooted and will be uh, will be brought back in, in in short order. So that that's kind of like the Cyrus Accords initiative. And I think you know next steps, of course, is to do more of that face to face, personal diplomacy, not through governments but through people, uh, to start putting uh, you know some meat on the bone into what actual Cyrus Accords will look like. You know what are those things that perhaps Israel and a pre-democratic Iran will be able to uh, collaborate on on day one. Uh, and, and that work can take place now, and I hope it will. And I know that there are a number of people working on those things. So, um, and, and as, as am I. Uh, in terms of the other things, so Yala, again, staying in the neighborhood, um, I, I did have the fortune to work um, you know, on the Abraham Accords um, as a supporting actor. And uh, um, one of the things that uh, became obvious there and that actually you know, informed my view of the region as well is you know, there are perceptions that people have in the West of how people, what people think, what people believe and what makes them tick. And when you actually go and you talk to people and you, you, you look at them in their face and you talk to them, um, and you, you really discover that, you know, what you see on the news is really, you know, probably not all that there is about that particular topic. And so it is here with Abraham Accords. So one of the things that I, I wanted to do when I left government is to make sure that the idea of Abraham Accords lived on and making peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors is not only good for those countries and those people, it's also good for the United States. Because as I said earlier, the more people that are free, the less tumultuous and combustible the Middle East is, the better it is for the American uh, people as well. So what I can do from my perspective as a communications guy, as somebody who understands advertising and marketing is try and reach people through media. And um, which led me to a partner with a, um, 
a, a friend, uh, Haby Buzo, who is a Syrian-born American journalist, um, uh, to launch a platform called Yella, Y-A-L-L-A. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, you can find it on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Watch Yella, W-A-T-C-H, Yella. Um, and essentially, it's a way to connect with the young people in the region, with Arab-speaking uh, audience in the region, to, number one, to show them that uh, their dreams are no less important than uh, the dreams of people in the West, and that the good news is, with the advent of Abraham Accords and you know, peace deals, and um, that there, there's so many more opportunities for them to realize their dreams. So it's important for us to communicate and at least make them aware of, you know, some tech innovation happening in the Emirates or some cultural, um, uh, you know, cultural breakthrough going on in Bahrain or something going on in Morocco. And hey, look at this collaboration on space or, or look at the Miss Universe contest in Israel uh, that was attended by, uh, you know, Arab um, uh, contestants. You know, all of these things open people's eyes and ears as to what's possible and are, you know, hopefully, you know, from our perspective, help them dream bigger and realize their dreams. And, uh, you know, I want to be part of that. And um, uh, and so that that's that's why we kind of embarked on this project that is aimed at the uh, Arab youth in the region. So I'm trying to cover both the Iranian youth, the Arab youth, the Israeli youth. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've impressed my own youth, the youth in my house yet, but, you know, uh, I'm working on that. <laughs> and in terms of China, to wrap it all up, yeah, uh, yeah Ch China, I think, is the number one priority for the United States and I think the free world for the next generation. Uh, I think the Chinese government is probably uh, the biggest danger to freedom, um, not just to the American people, but to people around the world. Iranian people I know are, are, are upset about the 25-year deal that the Chinese government and the Raisi government are working on uh, these days. Uh, look, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's going to amount to something or not, but uh, the, the danger of the Chinese government, which is probably, you know, the, the foremost um, human rights abuser, um, um, corporate cr criminal um, surveillance state, um, uh, you know, uh, complicit in a genocide of, of a Muslim minority group called the Uyghurs um, is, is really a, something that is fundamentally that we in the United States need to pay attention to. And I think people who care about freedom and democracy ought to pay attention to because, uh, um, you know, the Chinese communist government is on the march and their goal is nothing short of global domination. And I know it sounds really scary, you know, like Marvel scary, but that's what it is. Um, you know, um, they're, they're, they, you know, if you look at who uh, friends of China are, um, it's Russia, North Korea, Venezuela, Iran, you know, it just tells you all you need to know about what the Chinese communist government stands for. And one of the things that I'm trying to focus on is uh, ensuring that high tech sphere is safe from Chinese incursion, 
because uh, the technology of tomorrow needs to be free technology and it needs to be trusted technology. And that is not something that the Chinese government is trying to uh, create. They're trying to create a um, high tech that is dependent on them and that uh, funnels all sensitive information, whether it's your private information as an individual, whether it's intellectual property for businesses or whether it's national security for countries, China is trying to um, you know, uh, um, dominate all of those spheres. And we are all a little bit less safe the more China dominates it and the less the free world uh, determines how high tech is uh, innovated for the next generation. And so I guess in a nutshell, that's, that's what I do these days. You know, a little bit of all those things, and I, I hope it's worthwhile in, in, in some way. Well, I got to about 10% of the questions that I had hoped to, to ask you. And now that you've talked about uh, the youth of Iran, the youth of uh, the Middle East, people in China, I, I think you, you may have to get back to your own youth um, at home. Um, but uh, Said, any, any last um, points or quick questions for Len before we, we wrap no, up? No, I, I just want, wanted to thank, thank, thank Len for the impressive work he has done in the, in, the, in the administration and the interesting and important job and projects that he's doing now. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much, Saeed. And thank you and thank you, Cameron, for continuing to do your part in uh, trying to create a better world. Um, I, I know that it's, uh, it's something that uh, was important to us inside of the administration and it continues to be important uh, to, uh, you know, Saeed, in your case, you're doing incredible research, uh, which, which I know a lot of influencers and decision makers um, uh, follow and take into consideration and use in their decision making. And Cameron, your, your Nufti's advocacy on behalf of the Iranian people is critical to ensure that one day soon, and I believe it's coming, the Iranian people uh, will be able to be free and determine their own destiny, just like the American people. So on that note, I appreciate you guys having me. Uh, I look forward to working with both of you guys to uh, bring about a better world and continue making the bad guys nervous. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for the very kind words. Very much appreciative. Uh, it's been really a pleasure. I mean, you, you've been just so, so generous to us at NUFTA. You had, you know, appeared in a lot of our events and that you know video that you really were a star of about the two-year anniversary of Aubon. So you just continue to you know be a great friend and ally and we really appreciate it. And I hope that the next time the three of us get together after we're done making the uh, the bad guys nervous is uh, grabbing a beer on uh, Mr. Len Street somewhere in Tehran uh, and uh, reminiscing about uh, about these old times. We will take you to a kebab in bazaar. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you guys figure that one out, but I'll see you there. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you again, Lenside. Good to see you as always. Uh, folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of Iran Uncovered. We'll see you next time.